welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and young alumni. I'm Kathy Hubbis, your host, and today we're celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Startup Cornell podcast. So we're doing a little happy dance here in the Cornell Broadcast Studios while I'm doing a happy dance because Bert and Abigail are busy recording. From our first guest, Nick Nikitas, to our 11th, Stephanie Wisner, we've heard about the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial life, about the importance of persistence, about the tools that make life easier for an entrepreneur, and about the way Cornell has impacted each of their journeys. We started recording these chats from my house outside of Ithaca during COVID and then improved the sound quality and eliminated the interruptions of dogs and FedEx deliveries and my frequent technical glitches by moving my part of the interview to the Cornell Broadcast Studios. What a relief. So to celebrate the first year of our podcast, we thought it would be appropriate to revisit some of the most inspiring moments from the past year. Kudos to my mentor, Jen Glantz, for this idea. I hope this recap of our first year gives you strategies you can use in your own ventures, tools for your day-to-day life, and encouragement to keep putting your ideas out there. So here we go with the year in review. Last summer, we launched the podcast with our first guest, Nick Nikitas. Thank you goes to Nick for being the first guinea pig in this experiment. Nick told us the story of his business, Rosie, a locally focused e-commerce company that partners with leading independent retailers and their wholesalers to provide e-commerce, delivery opportunities, shopper marketing, and deep data services. Nick talked about the importance of measuring his company's progress. People play better when they know the score. If you look at a commonality between all sports, every single sport has a scoreboard. And a business needs to have a scoreboard too. What gets measured gets improved. And if your team doesn't know the score, then they're on their way to losing. And so we measure everything. Everything that counts gets measured. And we make sure that everyone in the business, top to bottom, sideways, knows what the score of the game is in any week, month, quarter, year. So measuring, I think, is a big part that we drive through the organization. He also talked about his greatest successes, including helping one of his employees secure an H-1B visa and other accomplishments. I'd say our commitment to accessibility in our product. Uh, Rosie right now is the leader in accessibility for the visually disabled or impaired for online shopping. We rate higher than, I think, eight of our competitors. And we have always understood and been blown away by the impact that our software can have on improving quality of, of life. I think most people see online grocery shopping and they're like, well, that's a convenience. It's going to save me time, or maybe it's going to save me money. But for our shoppers who are visually or physically impaired, online grocery shopping allows them to have independence in a way that the traditional retail store format doesn't allow. So I'm really, really proud of the leadership position we've taken on that. And then I'd say just everything that we did over the last year through the COVID-19 pandemic. Rosie went from being a tech company, a startup, to being an essential business that was providing a really valuable service to communities, local communities throughout the U.S. In our second episode, we switched gears from online services and headed to actual consumer products, where we talked with Brooke Wingo, the co-founder of Zone Swimwear, a company offering fully customizable suits for teams. She talked about why she founded the company. It's kind of a funny problem. There just aren't really custom swimsuits. And so you get to go to, you know, a football game, for instance, and you see the Patriots playing the Chiefs and they get their special uniforms that have their colors and their mascot and even their names on their gear. 
and swimmers don't have that. So you would go to a swim meet and you'd have these two country clubs swimming against each other and one might be, you know, the rapids and the other is the waves. So very similar mascots already and they might even have the same swimsuits, like truly the same exact off-the-shelf suit. We just think people can have a lot more fun and there's some new technology that we're using to make these suits. You didn't used to be able to do it very well. That's the long and the short of it. There was just a really interesting gap in this market. And she told us about her word of the year. Every year I have a word of the year, just as a fun little thing for myself. And my word of the year for 2020 was actually showtime because my grandfather, my mom's dad, Pop, has all these wonderful expressions that he used to always say to my mom. And she taught them to, you know, my brother and me. And we have this wall in our basement that has chalkboard paint and so she's written all of them up there for me to look at all the time so they've seeped into my being but one of the expressions that i love so much he used to always say life ain't a dress rehearsal it's showtime and i think that's such an important mentality to have always to be present and seizing the moment and not acting like you know oh i'll just do this for practice or you are doing things for practice. I think this is my first podcast. I think hopefully this is practice for future ones, but I also want to make this the best one it can be too. You know, I really want to be present giving this everything. So it's showtime, baby. So my word of the year in 2020 was actually showtime, which is so funny. And then in March, it was specifically a showtime baby. You got to throw in the baby. But then in March, it changed to the show must go on. And so that became an attitude that I had to learn for the first time is just, I mean, not for the first time, but for the first time in such a, just profound, again, I keep using that word, but a profound way of the show must go on. What can, you know, what can we do now to stay positive and stay disciplined? Brooke also told us about who she admires the most, along with her family. And guess who that is? I really admire Dolly Parton so much because I think she's so feminine and so graceful, but clearly so tough and has very, very strong boundaries. So I admire her as a woman and as a businesswoman. Also, I admire Brene Brown so much. I consume all of her work <laughs> regularly. I've read several of her books twice. I've watched her documentary on Netflix, I think three or four times. So her, and I just really admire people who are open about their stories and about their struggles too. So I admire Tim Ferriss for a lot of the work he's done to talk about mental health and he just creates spaces for really vulnerable conversations. So I admire that as well. In episode three, we visited with Jaron Petty, founder and CEO of ColorStack, which is a nonprofit on a mission to increase the number of Black, Latinx, and Native American college students in computing. They do this through community building and career development. Jaron turned out a job at Google to start this organization. So he talked with us about how he launched an online community for CS students during COVID. We launched this national community online and it's hosted on Slack. So this is a community that kind of is remote first where you can come, you can join, you can ask questions in, the, in our forum, so to speak on Slack, and you can go to the events that we'd host almost weekly. We were doing events weekly. Um, and so the idea there was we didn't, it wasn't a program per se, so we didn't really have any metrics that we're looking to track. We were just trying to create a community um, and hopefully that would be valuable. And what we found was within the first few months, we've had members that that joined and said, hey, just being in this community uh, for the summer 
uh, kept me in the major because I was already deciding to leave computer science, but just being here and having fun and talking to people and learning from others and seeing myself um, in a community of other students that are studying computer science was enough for me to say, okay, I can still do this. So that's kind of what we launched with and what we've doubled down on in terms of like formalizing that notion of a community and just really being intentional about the events that we're doing and the moderation of our forum. Um, but now we're moving in a direction of building on top of that. So that's, that's like 60%, 70% of the way, you know, to really providing value to students, right? Because you can only host so many events that are valuable to any student at any given time. So now we're moving in the direction of adding these short-term time-bound programs that you would apply to um, that would solve a specific problem. So if you're specifically looking to get more of an introduction to computer science and you're early in your undergrad, we have a program for you. If you're looking to, you're a junior looking for your first internship, we have a program for you. If you're a senior looking to start a company, we have a program for you. So we're trying to build out these programs that kind of reinforce and strengthen the community because students can kind of be a part of this intensive experience and then throughout the rest of the year still be in our broader community, but with more information, but with more of a reason to kind of contribute and support each other. He also shared how he managed to attract interest from investors and partners who might be interested in his organization and his mission. Think about every person you talk to, you interact with as yourself in a way like like you have motives you have objectives when you want to hire somebody when you want to sell to somebody like remember that they are in the same boat like they also have their own set of objectives and so instead of waiting for both of you to kind of give like just be the first person to kind of commit to learning what they need the other person needs and kind of speaking that language first um because it'll get you further faster right and so i think whether it, whether it's an employee and that you're like I really want you to do X versus Y. Remember that, you know, they have their own goals for career progression and their own ways of doing things. Um, they have their own working styles. And so start with that, like start with understanding who they are and what their goals are. And obviously your job is to, I think, making it seem like the person at the other side of the table is coming up with the idea or making the decision is like the best thing you could do, right? Like if you, you're in a sales conversation, it's, it's as if the other person is selling you on why they should be your customer, like you're doing it right, right? And that, that just comes with speaking the other person's language. And that starts with learning what their goals are. And his personal mission statement to help black and brown students reach their potential is awesome. I've been thinking about this recently as well, just as I think about my career in the long term. And I think Ultimately, what I want to do, I mean, you can't really quantify this, but ultimately what I want to do is help specifically more black and brown, unrepresented, marginalized groups and young people in particular to reach their potential. And, and by that, I mean, I think I looked at a lot of what was happening around me and what I saw, like, obviously you could, you could call it different things like retention or attrition, like all these buzzwords, but what I saw when I saw a student, you know, not performing as well in this class that they really wanted to take or, you know, leaving the major of computer science um, or not starting a company because of financial reasons, I look at them and I see kind of them right now. And then I see this kind of like ghostly other version of them and like that path that's like leading them to fulfillment and success and happiness. And I, like, I, it gets, I kind of get emotional thinking about the fact that there is this future, this path that you are not going to take because of these other reasons that may be out of your control. And that like hurts me like that, that, that hurts to just see people um, not reach their full potential. And so doing better at trying to like really figure out, like hone in on the statement, because I do think about that. 
but untapped, like helping young black students reach their potential, I think is really what it comes down to for me. That gets me, gets me up in the morning. Um, specifically when it comes to tech, computer science, and starting companies. In September of last year, we had the pleasure of chatting with Jamie Kim, a member of the class of 2019 who is the founder of Jamie's Farm. This is a company that inspires change in the way we eat on a daily basis through the humble form of granola. After years of baking and giving away culinary-inspired granola to her friends, Jamie started her business as an undergrad at Cornell. For me, granola was this humble platform, this great snack that we would just always munch on that I felt was a really great platform to just showcase all these different flavors and ingredients from local farms. It was really after several years of them asking for my granola that I decided to actually launch this business while I was going to school at Cornell. I took this idea, pitched it to my marketing class, and I realized that more classmates started asking for it. And that's how I really started the business. Jamie talked about why she thinks she ended up being an entrepreneur. It has something to do with being an active and creative kid. When I was growing up, I feel like I always wanted to create a project for myself, something that you know, maybe I just dreamed of because I was always like a daydreamer when I was in school. So I would go home and, you know, create a project for myself. Like, you know, I'm going to build a dollhouse out of paper or something and, you know, just work on it. I just think that I was very, you know, maybe active in like physically in terms of sports, but also just had a lot of time to myself where I was able to, you know, just imagine a lot of things. So you have a lot of creativity and a lot of ideas going around in your head all the time. I think a lot of creativity, yeah. I think also because I enjoy processes so much, rather than just getting to the end, I love like the entire journey. And so I think that's also part of the reason why. So I think a lot of, you know, passion, but also just patience. And even though Jamie is a very young entrepreneur, she pointed to her persistence as one of the best character traits and probably her greatest success so far. I would say the greatest success really is just sticking to this business for as long as I have. I think when I first started it, I didn't have, you know, huge plans for it. You know, like I, I would say that my goal back then was really to sell at the specialty food stores and really become a part of the artisan scene and, you know, exchange my granola and have other people, you know, just have it bring some level of joy. In, into their lives. And I feel like I've already been doing that. And I think sometimes it's so easy to feel as though you haven't done that much over the last few years and not appreciate the journey or like where you've come. But I think at the end of the day, I would feel really proud because I've already done exactly what I set out to do. And I'm doing more than I had ever anticipated or expected. So I think really just the patience and perseverance has been my greatest success. Over the next couple of years, I'm excited to continue growing the business. I have this vision for becoming an icon brand for the world of granola, really changing the landscape of what food looks like in, in grocery stores and packaged food. You know, I set out to really reinvent the granola category and to create uh, more unique flavors made with transparently sourced ingredients. And I think one of the parts that's so fulfilling is to really share the stories of the farm farmers that we work with in the business. And so that's something that I want to continue doing, which is 
you know, really just to share and tell stories of other people. For our fifth episode, we visited with J.P. Pollock, the co-founder and chief architect of the Commons Project Foundation. J.P. is also a senior researcher in residence at Cornell Tech and an assistant professor of clinical epidemiology at Weill Cornell Medical College. The Commons Project is a nonprofit public trust established to build platforms and services to make life better for people around the world. At the time we talked last fall, the foundation was working on apps that provide a secure and verifiable way for people to document their health status, including their COVID vaccination records and COVID test results. We formed a, a coalition, a project called the Vaccine Credential Initiative. Uh, we founded that uh, along with other collaborators like the MITRE Corporation, Apple, Microsoft, the Mayo Clinic and Cigna and a couple of others. And with a bunch of support from, you know, the big electronic medical record vendors from lots of different health systems, from several of the retail pharmacy chains, we set to really try and, and solve the problem of how could we give a single format of QR code or a piece of health data that people could use in lots of different circumstances. So, you know, here in the U.S., our healthcare system is really fragmented. As you may know, our government decided that they were going to firmly stay out of the vaccine credential or vaccine passport business. So that really left it up to the private sector to solve this problem. You know, we're in a position where there are 50 different states that have immunization registries, uh, some of which uh, do have technical capabilities to do this sort of thing, and many of which don't, and certainly some of which do not have the political motivation to issue their constituents uh, a vaccine credential at, at this time. So, you know, the idea was we're not going to have a single federal credential. Can we at least all agree on one single format and get all of these different players who are issuing vaccines uh, or who have vaccine registries to give people the same kind of credential? Uh, and we've gotten there. JP talked about how his career in science evolved into one where entrepreneurship has played a big role. I've always been sort of an opportunistic uh, career person, opportunistic in the sense that I'm more interested in you know, working on problems that I find challenging or exciting, and particularly doing that with people that I like and find compelling. And so I've definitely meandered a little bit over the course of my career. But generally speaking, I have had sort of a consistent path going from starting out working on, you know, bigger data kinds of problems, tools for researchers, analytical kind of stuff, consistently moving towards things that are closer to people, you know, actually getting tools and services into people's hands that make their lives easier or better. Um, I come from a background in, in health and health data and the hard sciences and health behavior and this sort of consumer health area that I work in as a place where there's opportunity to make really big impact. You know, we have so many societal health problems uh, and behavior and, you know, sort of consumer attitudes, things along those lines uh, are at the core for so many of them. And we have so little idea how to address uh, many of these kinds of problems. And so for someone like me who has the science background to understand uh, enough about the health issues and the science and the biology, but no clinical training of, of any kind, uh, this is a domain in which, you know, I feel like I can actually make some impact. For our sixth episode, I turned the mic over to guest host Tom Shriver, the executive director of Cornell's Center for Regional Economic Advancement. Tom interviewed Stephanie Carton, who's the founder of Socialfly, the CEO of Entrepreneistas, and a co-author of Like, Love, Follow, 
The Entrepreneurista's Guide to Using Social Media to Grow Your Business. Stephanie remembered when she first thought of herself as an entrepreneur as a kid. I feel like I have been an entrepreneur. We actually say entrepreneurista my entire life. I was always selling things as a child. Uh, I'm probably not alone in saying this, but I got my first taste of being an entrepreneurista when I was a brownie selling Girl Scout cookies back when I was only, I think, six or seven years old. And I still remember that feeling being recognized as a top seller selling Girl Scout cookies. And I quickly realized that you could sell things that there was a demand for and make a business doing it. So that was definitely my first taste. And then I went on to, as a child, selling uh, friendship bracelets and then went on door to door, then went on to um, see the whole craze of Beanie Babies that were launching when I was in middle school and buying up all the Beanie Babies from the stores and then putting up signs in my you know neighborhood grocery store and parents coming to my house to buy them from me. So I am a, I think, true born and bred entrepreneur. And it's, I think it's just in my DNA. So what is an entrepreneurista? And how has Stephanie managed to grow this community of women who run their own businesses? Well, she talked about that too. Courtney, my business partner and I, who I will probably talk a lot about, um, we initially started a social media agency called Social Fly back in 2011, initially on the side of our full-time jobs. We were both working in the corporate world and we're working nights and weekends on some client projects for about 10 months before we said to each other, okay, this is going to be a real business. We either have to go all in and do it or not do it at all. So we quit our corporate jobs on the same day, which was May 4th of 2012. And we never looked back and we have grown and scaled our social media agency over the years, uh, which we bootstrapped by doing really great work for our clients and being referred to other new businesses as well. We started winning all of these awards for our work. We were featured on the Inc. 5000 list for many years in a row. And what started to happen was so many women were reaching out to us literally every single week, wanting to go out to coffee and wanting to pick our brain and really wanting to hear how we were able to grow and scale our business. And what you'll learn about myself and Courtney is we're both the type of people that like to help absolutely everyone. But we started to realize that if we were to go out to coffee with every single person that reached out to us, we would never have time to run our core business. And at the time it was just social fly. Now we have a few different ventures, entrepreneurship being one of them. But we started thinking, you know, how can we help as many women as possible and not just share our story over and over again, but share all of these stories of these incredible women who are building these amazing companies have so much insight to share, so much advice to share. So that was our initial idea was let's start a podcast and feature these stories and, and interview all of these women. So they would have a platform to be able to share and we could, you know, make an impact at scale. So when we started Entreprenista, at, at first it was, I say, just a podcast, not that there's, you know, just a podcast, but that's what it was when we first started. We were a podcast and we were, you know, this is in 2018 when we released our new episode and we were organically growing our social communities. And then when everything happened with the pandemic in 2020, so many women were reaching out to us looking for more help and resources and insight and community. You know, we were getting messages from women, you know, who had lost jobs because of the pandemic and were reaching out to us because they needed help, you know, with the tools and resources on how to start a business or they were looking for inspiration or they just wanted to chat with us. And Courtney and I started thinking, you know, we really need to like lean in and go all in and help these women. They've, you know, been following our podcast. They're part of our community, but we need to be able to offer them more and all of these resources that they need. 
So Courtney and I decided to do what we have done best over the years as business partners, which we say divide and conquer. And we realized we needed to do that. And in order to really build Entreprenista into what it is today, and it's going to be, you know, even bigger than, than what I'm sharing with you now, based on all of our plans, we knew we had to divide and conquer. So what that has looked like is Courtney now runs our agency business, Social Fly, and I've been running everything on the Entreprenista side. So back to your initial question of what is Entreprenista, we are now a full media company and membership community. So what that looks like is we have our podcast, Entreprenista. We're launching another podcast um, at the beginning of next year called Startups and Stilettos. We have a full media platform and content site, entreprenista.com, where we share all of these stories of women business owners and leaders. So they have a platform to share what they're doing in their business to connect and help others. And we share all of the best business tools and resources and solutions that women need to grow their business. And we launched our membership community, which is called the Entreprenista League. In episode seven, we had fun with two guests, Laura Ciccone and Tully Matatiahu, co-founders of Blink, a voice-first speed dating app that helps people build meaningful connections based on genuine compatibility. They also host Date in a Blink, a voice-only speed dating podcast experience. Laura talked about their obsession with the psychology behind how people connect. There are so many really incredible studies that have been done over the last uh, 30 years, really, on how people date, mate, and relate to each other. Uh, But there's a lot of really nice uh, peer-reviewed studies that exist. And so that's really what we dug into is a a variety of different meta-analyses of different relationships and what is a better indicator for what's going to be a strong relationship. And there's a few things that really stand out for us. So one of the things is if you think about how you relate to people, uh, a lot of the modern dating apps really focus on the visual. And one of the interesting things is about half of the population, you need to have the physical connection first in order to kind of continue through the process. Um, But it's often actually not relatable to long-term success of the relationship. And then for the other half of the population, you need to have an emotional connection before you want to continue the conversation. And so that's kind of the first thing is about uh, what are modern dating apps doing currently in the experience that kind of help you meet more people uh, in a way that is really easy to do so. And in that, you kind of lose a lot of the spirit of what makes dating a fun and deeply human experience. And so that's one of the interesting things is, okay, well, how much do visuals actually tell you about a person, especially if it's a curated profile, if someone's made up in their profile, you know, how are people relating and engaging with that? And so one of the interesting things that we dug into a little bit further is uh, it goes a little bit more into the child psychology of it. And it talks about, you know, texting between parents and children and what's the relationship there and how does that evolve and develop? And so one of the things that uh, are some of the more recent studies are coming out to show what the impact is on children being able to hear their parents' voices. And this is something that, I think there's starting to be more studies on this as well in terms of what is it like when you're engaging with someone on a peer-to-peer relationship, when you're texting with somebody first. And some of the things that they find is that it's extremely difficult. You can't tell tone through text. Uh, You can also, if you're looking at something that's curated, you read it with whatever preconceived notion it is that you have in the back of your mind, as opposed to what that person might actually be intending. Uh, And so there's a layer that's removed 
from the process of actually getting to know somebody or understanding somebody's intent, that can lead to a lot of miscommunications. And then beyond that, uh, there's also a lot of studies about first impressions and how long does it actually take to get to know somebody. And so there's some places that say within, you know, 27 seconds of first meeting someone, you've already established how you feel about that person. There are other ones that say within four minutes, you really know enough about that person to determine whether you want to do uh, continue engaging with them or not. The science kind of goes on and on about, you know, how you make initial assumptions about people. Uh, it then continues to talk about the visual bias and how there's actually no correlation to whether you think you like somebody to whether you're actually going to be with that person long-term. It has a lot more to do with kind of your core value system. That's the thing that can kind of glue people together in the long term. And Tully shared why she thinks she's attracted to entrepreneurship. I grew up with immigrant parents and I always saw them hustling. My dad is self-employed. And I think that really instilled in me this idea that you can build your own world if you want to, if you're willing to put in the work. And it's just a matter of deciding what it is that you want to build. And, you know, ever since I, I had that experience at this blackout restaurant and realized how quickly people write each other off based on appearances. I've been sort of noodling over how can we, you know, help people make better connections? And is this an experience that can help define kind of a, an opportunity? And, and I'm so excited to be able to do that with Blink, both in the dating context, which is what we're working on now, but also in the future in other contexts and in other verticals. So it's just a, a personal passion of mine that's kind of a driving force in terms of entrepreneurship, but also this particular concept of helping people make more authentic connections based on true compatibility. In February, we featured a chat with Rich Horgan, the founder of Cure Rare Disease, a nonprofit biotech company working to create individualized therapeutics using CRISPR technology to treat people impacted by rare diseases. Rich founded the company for very personal reasons. His younger brother, Terry, has Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. We focus on Duchenne muscular dystrophy or DMD first because my younger brother has it and, and so do 15,000 other uh, boys and young men in the United States. So it is a pretty, uh, it is a devastating rare disease. The disease itself is characterized by progressive muscle weakness, ambulation or the ability to walk is usually lost as, as, the, as the young man or boy turns uh, 10 or 11. And then things continue to move downhill from there with impacts on pulmonary and cardiac function. And ultimately the disease is 100% fatal. And so right now, DMD is a death sentence. And so what we're trying to do is intervene to, to harness the potential CRISPR genome editing to combat the disease and ultimately stop the progression or even better reverse the progression. But ultimately, what, what I'm trying to build is a framework and a system that will allow society to tackle virtually any rare genetic disease that can be treated um, with technologies that we have or will have in the future. Think of it as an ecosystem. At the core of the ecosystem is drug development, this framework that we can go first and develop a drug for an individual. We do this by first characterizing the individual's mutation. So what exactly do we have going on here in a genetic level? What's causing the mutation? And we do that through whole genome sequencing. Think 23andMe, but fancier. And then after the, the characterization is done, we also set up a cell line. So think of this as a patient in a dish. For muscle diseases, we take patient muscle and expand that out into a cell line. For neurodegenerative diseases such as SCA3, which is one we're working on, uh, we convert skin cells into neurons. So you, it's important to have that patient in a dish so that we can test candidate therapeutics that are then built in the patient cells prior to moving into anti-animal models. Once that wow. therapeutic development's been done, then we'll validate and optimize in the patient cell line. If it works in the patient cell line, we have higher degree of confidence that it will work in the individual. And then we move on to animal model testing so we can see in a system, not just a cell line, do we see efficacy? And also do we see toxicity, which is very important. Is it safe? 
and does it work are the two questions we have to answer. Rich also talked about why he chose to make his organization a nonprofit, how he manages the fundraising process, and how he negotiates with insurance companies. Oftentimes I get asked why a not-profit and why not a for-profit right away. You know, when I started this back in, you know, 2017, 2018, the idea of a venture capital model supporting or funding an organization that developed um, N equal one therapies at the time was very outlandish. Um, thinking has radically changed since then, and there is increasing interest, although there still needs to be pieces put in place around reimbursement, which we mentioned earlier. How to industrialize this, and, and how, do we, how do we scale this with more venture money? Um, but for the time being, the not-for-profit model fits really well for a couple of reasons. We source funding from all sorts of different avenues. We have galas, golf golf tournaments, corporate partnerships, as you can imagine, is an increasing um, side of things where we want to start to roll out programs like adopt a family, right? If this is a company who's headquartered in Texas, we've got patients in Texas. And so that company really gets an intimate relationship with the family and, and vice versa, where they know the family story. They, they watch the development over the two to three year timeline that it takes to develop and, and get approval to inject this drug. And so, you know, we're trying to roll out novel programs to, to continue to fundraise. We're involved in esports and streaming. So if you think, uh, you know, basically people playing video games on Twitch who will run charity streams for us, that's been really effective. And it's really, really resonates with our patient population as well, uh, because a lot of rare disease patients are heavily involved in streaming and gaming. It's a nice, very on-brand effort, I would say, in, in the esports space. Ultimately, sustainability, though, comes from really two main functions. Uh, the first is reimbursement, which I mentioned earlier, you know, convincing right. insurance companies that it makes economic sense. That's how they operate to reimburse customized therapeutics. The individual cost, as well as the cost to insurance is really quite high. And so the earlier we can intervene in treating the disease, the more the, the manifestation that we can delay or eliminate altogether, therefore saving the insurance company money and ultimately giving the patient the, the best quality of life. So a nice lineup of, of incentives there again. The second piece of sustainability is what we do with the drugs after. Some of these are truly N equal one drugs, meaning it's only for one patient, but some of these are larger populations, not huge, not, not thousands, but some are dozens or, or low hundreds. And so, you know, our organization is really good at lean drug development, getting drugs that are safe and efficacious into a very small group of patients. After that, the intention would be to uh, license or partner with a larger drug development organization so that they can treat the rest of the population. At the end of our conversation, Rich talked about the groundbreaking pace of scientific discovery in the last 10 years and what those discoveries mean for the future. Our job to do as a society is that make sure those tools are, are advanced to a place that can help make society a better place, not just make a lot of money. It's societies at a kind of a challenging point right now where, where we face a lot of inequality. We face a lot of additional challenges that didn't or weren't as aware of 10 years ago that we need to deploy these tools for the, the right thing and not, not just profit-seeking. And that's something I think universities, especially top universities like, like Cornell, need to focus on and continue to focus on is how do we bake in the person and the people into the equation of business? It's, it's not just about how do we maximize ROI anymore. It's we need to do better than that. Sticking with the healthcare theme, in March, we talked with Kayla Foley and Jashia Howard, founders of Staff on Tap, a digital marketplace that fills long-term care providers' scheduling needs by connecting them to temporary nurses in the area. The pandemic definitely made it worse. You know, we had a lot of nurses who were maybe going to retire in the next five years, but they were now scared to come to work. They were in a more vulnerable population, and so they ended up retiring early. So we lost those, as well as we were doing twice a week testing. And so our nurses would get sick and then it would have to be out for 11 days. So it definitely made the staffing crisis a lot worse. 
However, there's also a silver lining that it showed the country, the world that nursing homes have been struggling with staff. And that's a big part of the reason why we can't provide the highest quality of care possible. Um, So I think it did open this window of opportunity for people like Joe and I to come in and bring some innovation, you know, kind of disrupt the industry a little bit and help the staffing problem in ways with technology that may not have been accepted or as forefront attention that it would have been two years ago. The pair were members of eLab during this past academic year, which is a student business accelerator that provides classes, funding, mentorship, and access to a variety of entrepreneurial resources. eLab is a year-long accelerator program. You get class credit, dozens of mentors, um, some funding, and just really a support and timeline to build your business. So you apply in an interview in the fall, and it's intimidating. Most people, I think, haven't pitched their business idea yet, and you can really be at any stage. You could be at the ideation phase. We have some people who already had a product on the market and you just have a conversation with the professors and then they choose, I think this year it was 24 teams. And then, yeah, just a very structured process throughout the year to help you grow your business. And they just want you to succeed. It's a lot of self-accountability. If you graduate and your business isn't at the right space, that's on you. It's really just a platform to give you all the resources, tools, opportunities to get that business to succeed. So it's been an incredible program. Shashia shared her personal mission statement, which has traveled with her all the way from middle school. I went to a school back when I was in middle school. It was called IS383 or Philippa Schuyler Middle School for the Gifted and Talented. And from the day that we stepped foot in that school, they had us recite this motto and it went like this. To whom much is given, much is required. We were reciting this until the day that we graduated. And it has stuck with all of us up until now. So uh, this is something that I hold very dear to me. And I, I don't know, I look at this mission statement as a way to help me to continue to push to provide solutions for people that don't have easy access. Another eLab member was the guest for our 10th episode, Uhali Jorio, who just graduated this year, started a travel company that offers private and customized trips around Morocco, his home country. He shared why visiting Morocco should be on all of our travel bucket lists. What I love about Morocco is its diversity. There are a lot of great things that people love when they go to Morocco, whether it is the food. Like the one thing that people, when they come back from Morocco, they're like, we love the food. We want to go back and have more Moroccan food. Then it's the hospitality of the people. Like people would help you and be nice to you without expecting anything back. And this is for me something It's very, very valuable and it impacts a lot of our travelers' experiences. And lastly, the different sites and the history, whether it is the different historic sites in Fez. Fez has, for example, the oldest and the first university in the world that was founded by a woman, actually. The different sites in Rabat, Casablanca. Then we go back to Marrakech, that's a very old city with different historical sites and experiences and very atypical activities people get to do. Whether it is like the Moroccan Hammam Spa experiences, we get people to have breakfast in the sky, overseeing like the boundaries of Marrakech. And whether it is the, the authentic Moroccan desert, the Sahara, spending a night there under the stars, it's like enough and unforgettable experience where you are in the middle of the desert in a very luxurious tent and spending a night there for me it's something that really really impact the experiences of travelers who come to Morocco. It's very hard to describe Morocco and your experience there until like you come and experience it but 
it's a country that keeps a big touch in people's lives and experiences when they go back home and after leaving the country there are a lot of small details that really touch people when they come to the countries. He also told us about his first foray into entrepreneurship, which wasn't through a for-profit company, but through founding the first NGO started by teenagers in Morocco. What drew me to entrepreneurship was more like NGOs and social activities. And actually what led me to the African Leadership Academy is was an NGO. I co-founded with my friends, so we were 13, 14. I was a little bit active in the social humanitarian club of my school. And I was used to see all those organizations and NGOs in Morocco. And I was like, oh, why not? Why don't we start an NGO and start an NGO in Morocco? And we ended up starting the first NGO in Morocco started by teenagers that is called Edes Sans Limites. And that experience had changed my life 360 degrees because... In Morocco, you expect young people to just go to school, study, follow like some generic routes, be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. It was very hard first to get my parents accept the fact that I'm starting an NGO legal with papers. When we used to go to the Moroccan authorities, we got rejected four times before actually getting the papers to be able to get that NGO out of the ground. Our main objective was to help people in need. We had like renovated few schools, help people with food during Ramadan. So some small actions, but leading those actions, leading a team, knowing how to work with people from a very young age had a big impact in my life and maybe triggered that entrepreneurship spirit that made me want to start my own business or start my own projects going forward. And he spoke of the importance of consistency, a habit he says is the most important one for student entrepreneurs. I think the most important habits for student entrepreneurs is to be consistent and work every day, maybe slowly but surely in getting your business out of the ground I believe is very important because consistency in anything in life is generally helps you but especially when you are building a business you can't work today and then not work for a month and then come back to the business I mean some people can do that but if you really want to build a business while being a student entrepreneur you really need to make it as a priority and be consistent in the work you do and when you are consistent in this there are opportunity costs that you have to give up on other things. Stephanie Wisner co-founder of Centivax was our most recent guest. She talked about the company's efforts to create universal vaccines, which could eradicate the remaining pathogens of the 21st century. She also talked about her recently released book, Building Backwards from Biotech. A pre-med student at Cornell, Stephanie planned to head to medical school after graduation, but when she discovered that many research discoveries aren't moved forward into applications, she switched gears. I was so excited by all the things we were discovering, but... At this point, I kind of noticed a problem, and the problem was this. We are constantly discovering all these innovative new things, but in academia, the incentive structure is such that, and this is not anything wrong with academia, this is just kind of the way it is, the incentive structure is such that you discover things in order to publish about them, not so that they actually come to the market and can affect real patients. And... I was so excited by the things that we were doing that I wanted to see them actually come to life and help people that needed it. And because I wanted to go to medical school, at the same time, I was also doing medical scribing in a primary care setting at University of Michigan. And in the primary care setting, I also saw a problem, which is that there were consistently patients we were seeing that had diseases for which there weren't good treatment options. And particularly in pancreatic cancer, the standard of care has not changed very much in 20 to 40 years. Pancreatic cancer is almost entirely deadly if you get it. And the survival rate has remained largely unaffected. But if you look at the research side while I was working in the lab, we were constantly discovering potential new ways of treating the disease. 
But those findings were not, you know, because this is just not the way academia works, not necessarily readily translatable into actually affecting people with the disease. And that bothered me. So instead of heading to medical school, Stephanie came back to Cornell to attend a program that helps scientists turn their research into products and companies. Through her book, Stephanie shares what she learned from her years of putting together a biotech company. My book is about biotech entrepreneurship, what it is, how I got into it, and what a new person entering the field or interested in the field needs to know about it. And the reason I wrote this book is as a young person with a STEM degree who didn't really have business training, getting into this industry was extremely difficult and confusing because biotechnology and drug development, as it should be, is complicated. But what that results in is a lot of information that isn't readily available in an easy, understandable way for someone who is coming from a science perspective. And I believe for there to be that next horizon of new medicines for the future to treat currently untreatable diseases, we need to have more biotech entrepreneurs getting into this space. And those entrepreneurs are often going to be scientists because they're the ones that understand the basic science enough to know how to innovate and create new medicines, but they don't understand the business a lot of times. So I wrote this book to make that more accessible for them so that we can get more entrepreneurs into this space. She also offered some wise advice for students. I think that something I'd like to leave students with is just this idea of you're young and it's important as a young person to do a couple things. Number one, realize that this is probably the most creative time you'll have in your life. I don't want to say that super definitively, but when you're young, I think there's kind of this power of creativity that just becomes potentially slightly less as you get older and kind of accept the world increasingly the way it is, as opposed to the way you think it should be. While you're young, I think there's this energy and potentially a sense of naiveness about the world, but you can leverage that as a young person and really create some cool things that potentially you wouldn't see or think to do when you were older. And then second, I think that really important piece of advice that goes with the first is that I cannot overemphasize the role of humility. I think a lot of young people, you know, and I'm sure I fall into this category myself sometimes, but I think a lot of young people can sometimes be so excited by the ideas they have that they think they know everything or they think they understand a problem fully. And I just want to say, like, don't overestimate yourself and don't underestimate wisdom from people that are generations older than you. One of my most frequent mentors that I call for everything is in her mid 60s. And she advises me on things day to day that maybe she hasn't directly experienced, but she's seen so much as someone who has lived so much more of life than me that I am constantly made better by that interaction. And so just the role of having mentors and not being afraid to ask for help. And on that note, point three, asking for help isn't always asking to do something new or asking for advice on a specific things, I think a really important thing and a role with mentors is being receptive to negative feedback. And that's a lot harder to do than it, than it sounds. But not feeling defensive when someone's giving you a piece of negative feedback and really asking yourself, how can I implement this? That's important. And even actively asking people, like the mentor I mentioned before, I'll frequently call her and just relay a meeting that had just happened. And I'll say, you know, XYZ happened. And I said this, did I handle that right? 
And we have this sort of relationship. I've cultivated this sort of relationship where she knows she can tell me, no, I don't think you handled that right. And here's why. And I can hear that and not get totally defensive. And that has made me better and more effective. The fact that I can have someone that tells me those things and that I can take that feedback and not get totally like shut down by it. So that's a huge, huge thing. And I think a lot of people are not so good at that. So that's a wrap on the first year of the Startup Cornell podcast brought to you by Entrepreneurship at Cornell. We are so grateful to you, our listeners, and to our guests. And we hope that you'll share this podcast with your friends and family. To find out more about Entrepreneurship at Cornell, visit eship.cornell.edu. And if you have a suggestion for a Cornell alumni, faculty, staff, or student who you think we should feature, please email me kah 53 at cornell.edu. As always, a special thanks goes to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and to Bert Onam-Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studios. Thanks for everything you do to support this podcast.